The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. I'm going to be honest with you that first service, first service, I had no idea that was happening. And man, that will throw you off before you get up and speak. Nothing like a trip down memory lane to remind you what a big geek you were uh, back in high school. So that was fun. Thank you, Evan, and those who put that together. I hate you, but I love you at the same time. Uh, If I haven't met you before, my name is Ryan, really is Ryan, and uh, one of the pastors on staff. Uh, Excited that you're here today as we continue in our What's Your Deal message series. Um, It's a look at the the book of Colossians, or as we now know, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. It's one of his letters. Um, If you missed one of the last couple weeks, I would highly recommend you go to our website, grove.church. You can uh, listen to the podcast there uh, or watch the vodcast and get caught up. It's great stuff. But if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to take those out. We're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And as you're turning there, I want to give us a little recap of where we've been, um, just so that we're all on the same page as we get started. This is a letter, again, that the Apostle Paul has written to a church. And there are some major points in each one of our uh, installments of this series that we're highlighting from Paul to the Colossians. In part one uh, is this idea, and it's a warning that Paul says, hey, beware of false teachers and false doctrines that have crept into our movement, right? Jesus uh, uh, had ascended to heaven. There was this movement of new churches being planted, this movement of Christ followers. And Paul's saying, hey, you need to be aware that there are some offshoots that are coming off of what Jesus has taught. And they can talk about Jesus and even centralize it around Jesus, but they're adding different things to it. They're, They're instructing you that you have to do different things. You need to be aware of this so that you don't start following it, right? A couple of the examples that Nick gave us in that opening um, uh, uh, installment was Gnosticism or asceticism. Those are just a couple. We don't have time to to digress into those, but these were some of the, the offshoots that were coming out of the Jesus movement. In part two last week, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, we've just springboarded off this idea to beware of false teachers uh, and, and doctrines that are creeping in. And where I want to point you and shift you in part two is back to Jesus himself, right? And Paul uh, goes on this long installment about the supremacy right, of who Jesus is. And I just want to read you a a, a short passage of that scripture, which, by the way, is the same passage of scripture that we used a few series a while ago called Inescapable, right? That series was us looking at the inescapable nature of Jesus's impact on our lives, even today in the 21st century, not just spiritually, but practically, right? A couple examples. We follow the Gregorian calendar that came out of the Jesus movement and the impact that he had, right? Other ways is the influence in, in the way that women, are valued. Jesus started to change that back when he was walking this earth. Institutions and help like hospitals. I mean, his impact has been inescapable. And this is one of the passages of scripture that was in that series and also reminded us, just listen along. You don't need to turn there. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 23. And this is Paul. And he says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things that were visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold 
together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Stop for a moment. I didn't do this in the first service, but I underlined that last verse that we read. In fact, I challenged my life group as we went through it last week. At the very end of our life group we were talking about, I said, hey, you want something that'll start to rock your theology a little bit? Go research that last line, right? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We're not going to divulge into that today. I wish I could stop the, the, the lover of Scripture in me wants to do that, but for time's sake, we can't, but go research that. Paul's going deep theologically here. And then he goes on to say, for in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And like the song we sang this morning, what Paul is declaring is Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the linchpin of our faith. Christ alone is our cornerstone. And what he has done is that in him, through him and for him, all things were created and hold together. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. And so Paul is following up his warning about false teachers and doctrines and pointing them back to the one who speaks truth is Jesus. That's what you need to be following, not all of these offshoot things that are distracting you. It's just white noise. And this is where we dive in today into Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, in the same way, this is the same letter that Paul wrote, and so we dive right back into the same theme. Paul says this, it says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was yet not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ for he forgave all of your sins. Check this out. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial, or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Let's pray as we dive in. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray a simple prayer this morning. It's a prayer that honestly 
We want to pray every time we come into your presence, whether it's on a Sunday morning here, another service somewhere else, our devotional time at home, that God, when we come into your presence, it's an opportunity to be changed, never the same again. And we ask and we're, we're searching that, God, that we would leave today changed knowing and understanding more about you. God, willing to be open to your teaching and to your direction in our lives. And we give you that privilege. We give you and ask you to come in and do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. See, what Paul is addressing here is he's taking the idea of part one, hey, false teachers and doctrines, be careful, it's out there. Part two, let me point you back to the one who does give you the truth. It's Jesus himself and what he taught. He is the fullness. All things hold together in him, were created by him. He was the first of all creation, the first to rise from the dead. It's all about Christ. And then he goes on in this new set, and he's reminding them as he begins about the incredible work of Christ. You notice that same theme, same idea. And he uses imagery here, and the imagery he uses is circumcision. When you and I hear that word, we squirm a little bit, right? It makes us a little bit uncomfortable, okay? Duly so. But the reason that Paul uses it is because his audience would understand, and he does it for two very specific reasons. Number one, he's illustrating what Christ has done. It's a new circumcision, right? They would know many of the readers of this would be from the Jewish culture. And when they lived in the Old Testament for generation after generation, the males of the Israelites, which was God's people, would be circumcised. And it was an outward mark that they were God's people. No other nation did it. And what Paul is saying is now there is a new circumcision that has taken place through Christ. It's not of a physical nature, but he spiritually cut away your sin nature, and they would absolutely be in tune with what he was saying. And it would, it would be one of those moments. It's like, wow, look at what God has done, this new thing. Paul then goes into the second illustration of why he used, which because it wasn't by accident that he used circumcision, is he's starting to illuminate an extra insight onto what has been happening with these false doctrines that he originally tackled in chapter 1. He's saying that infused in these new false teachings and these offshoots that are starting is also an old mix of Old Testament legalism. In the beginning movement of the Christian church, he's using the word, this term circumcision because it is a hot button topic for their day. I want you to pause for a moment and think of some hot button topics going on in our culture right now in media, in news, and in politics. It is tribalizing and polarizing our nation. There are things that you don't dare touch or start talking about, or boy, you better watch out what's going to come after you, no matter what side you're on. Circumcision was one of those things for Paul's day. He's using it intentionally. He's making people uncomfortable intentionally because of this topic. Let me explain why. Is in the Jesus movement that came after the life of Jesus, obviously, and the new churches were being planted, Jews had a couple major hurdles that they had to try to get over to put their faith in Jesus. Remember, Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history for their culture was they were God's chosen people. The first hurdle that some Jews could not cross and ended up not following Jesus is the fact that now it was open to everybody. It wasn't just for the Jews anymore. It was for Jew and Gentile. It was for man and woman, white and black, slave and free. And some of them had a hard time getting over that. Some of them who were able to make that jump eventually came to this idea of saying, okay, Paul the revelation of Peter, this idea of now it's for everybody. Okay, we're, we're, we're willing to entertain that idea now. It's been tough, but we're willing to kind of accept that. But what we want is first, Gentiles can't just 
accept Jesus. We had to go through all of these things, and so they need to go get circumcised first. It was a major push in the first century church. Opposition to the Apostle Paul's teaching was they wanted Gentiles to become Jews first before they could become Christians. And they wanted them to go be circumcised. In essence, they said, wait, 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 wait. Man, when we followed God, we had to get circumcised, right? We, we had to memorize a lot of scriptures. Right? We had to sacrifice and refrain from eating certain foods and certain drinks, right? We, we had to go make sacrifices uh, for ourselves with animals to atone for our sin. And we had to observe Old Testament laws of rituals and feasts and ceremonies and Sabbaths. And so, Paul, we're open to the idea of the Gentiles reaching Jesus, but they need to become Jews first. They got to jump through all the hoops that we've jumped through. And Paul stands in uh, stark contrast and vehemently argues against this ideal. Pause for a moment. The heart issue that's going on in the Jews is not that unlike what we see in the parable of the vineyard that Jesus shares. See, if you know the parable of the vineyard, in the essence, this parable is that there's a vineyard owner and he's hiring workers to come out and work his field. And so some workers show up very, very early in the morning and he says, I'll pay you X amount of money to go work in my field. They say, that sounds great. Let's do it. So they go out early in the morning and they start to work in the vineyard. And as they're working out there, a couple hours later, they see a new group of, uh, of workers start to come out and join them and work side by side with them in the field. And this happens throughout the day. And then even at the very last hour, the very end of the day, a new wave of workers comes out and starts to work the vineyard with them. And finally, the day is done, and they all together go in to receive the reward, their daily wage. And what they find out is everybody receives the exact same wage. And the workers that were there early in the morning are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what? I've been here all day. I mean, I was here in the early morning. I worked through lunch and didn't eat anything. I was here in the afternoon or the heat of the day. And these people come in at the very end when there's only like an hour left and it's not even hot anymore and they get paid the same thing. That's not fair. Now, the principle of the two things are very different. The parable of the vineyard, Jesus is using that specifically for salvation. The idea that many had lived their whole lives in following God and all of these customs and all of these traditions and all of these things that they sacrificed and they still got their reward. But when they found people that came at the very end of their lives and gave their hearts to God, that wasn't fair. And the vineyard worker, in essence, what Jesus is saying is why you got what was negotiated that you said was fair. Why do you care if I extend that grace and that thing to somebody else? And it was because of this heart issue. That's not fair. They need to go through all of the same steps that we've gone through before. And Paul is standing and preaching against us. It's why he uses circumcision very intentionally. And so then he goes through these passages of Scripture, encouraging them about what Christ has done. But then in verse 16, he takes a bit of a turn. In essence, he says, now that I've told you this, now that you understand this, I want to turn and I want to give you some instruction. And so in verse 16, Paul says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ which is the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together 
with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion. They may seem wise because they require pious self-denial. They may seem wise because they require severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And so what Paul does is he starts to address a new issue, and he continues this idea of false teachers and doctrines points them back to Jesus and then says these same teachers that are out there to distract you not only are adding new things to you, they're trying to set their hooks into the habits of your yesterday. They're trying to keep you locked in and chained to the past legalism of the old covenant, the list of things you needed to do. But he's saying Jesus has set you free from those things. Not only has he set you free from sin, not only has he set you free from death, You can't earn it on your own. These things were meant as a guideline for you to point you towards God. The Ten Commandments were a guideline for you of the difference between what is evil and what is good, what is right and what is wrong. But over all these centuries, it's turned into a list of things that you just check off the box. I did this. I went to this. I saw this thing. I didn't do this thing. And I got this whole list of stuff I'm not supposed to do. And what it had turned into is a way that they could earn salvation themselves. And Paul is addressing this. The false teachers were preying on these old habits and trying to teach that believers still needed to observe those things. I was doing some research on this. And the false teachers of that day claimed that they had attained and were able to attain a heightened form of spirituality and holiness independently of Jesus Christ. At its heart, then, this false teaching advocated a pathway to fullness and favor with God that refused to rest satisfied in all that we have in Jesus Christ alone. In order to achieve this elite status, they insisted, these teachers, that a person must follow a rigorous, ascetic approach to life. Again, we can hear more about that in part one a few weeks ago. This entailed abstaining from certain drinks and certain foods and, of course, required meticulousness in the observance of certain religious festivals and holy days. This particular form of asceticism required that one deny him or herself basic bodily needs and be willing to endure other forms of physical mistreatment. The leaders of this movement had created a long list of prescribed activities from which one must be diligent to abstain from. If a person proved faithful in abiding by these extra-biblical and ascetic practices and engaged in the fervent worship of angels, one might expect to receive religious visions in which things inaccessible to the ordinary believer are seen and experienced. We see that in verse 18 that Paul addresses. All of this served to mark these individuals out as spiritually superior when compared to the average individual. But Paul's response to these alleged things, he simply said, they're religious behavior and they achieve nothing. He tells us and encourages us that we should not let people judge us as inferior or that we should be disqualified from attaining the ultimate prize, which is fellowship, acceptance, and salvation through Christ to God simply because we don't follow their instructions. 
After all, the Old Testament religious festivals and holy days, Paul says, were a mere shadow pointing to Jesus Christ in whom they were all fulfilled. It's a beautiful line. All of those things you used to have to do were simply a shadow pointing you to what was to come. Many of them missed it, didn't recognize it, didn't, didn't understand it. But these things you needed to refrain from, these things that you used to practice that reminded you about God, all of this stuff was a shadow pointing you to a reality yet to come. You ever noticed a shadow? Maybe it's your own shadow on a sunny day, right? You see the outline of yourself. Sometimes it's not very um, uh, appealing when you see it, depending on you know, how, where, where the sun is at, right? It can make you look bigger, smaller, stretchy out, right? But you can see the basic shadow, even of an object you can see, and you can kind of tell and maybe guess what it is. But you don't get to see the intricacy of the object or of the person until it's illuminated and you see them, right? If we lived our lives just following shadows, we could see the outward forms. And that's the, the analogy or the word picture that Paul is using. These were just things trying to give you an idea, a glimpse, a small understanding of what's to come. And that reality is Jesus. When Jesus came and paid the price on the cross, it changed the paradigm. It changed the playing field. Nothing is the same anymore through what he's done. That's what Paul is addressing. And his whole point to these individuals is he understands that not only these religious leaders adding things in to what they need to do, pointing them back to Jesus, but he's saying be careful because habits are hard to break. These things you've done your whole life, your mom did it, your grandparents did it, their grandparents did it, theirs before them. And somehow it looks great on paper, doesn't it? It looks good, it looks spiritual, but you gotta break away from those things. You're no longer chained to those things. And what Paul is pointing out in part three for us is a huge new point, that because of what Christ has done on the cross, you and I have been set free. He's saying yesterday, you used to have to perform sacrifices to make atonement for your sin. But today, under the new covenant, there's a final sacrifice that has already been completed. And all you have to do is understand it, accept it as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Nick said it last week. It's for by grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves is a gift from God. Yesterday, you had to be circumcised under the old law, but today I tell you there is a spiritual transformation that has gone on inside because of what Christ has done on the cross. Paul's saying yesterday you used to have to abstain from certain foods and certain things, but today I tell you that all things are clean. All things are lawful. Paul, in another writing, another letter to another church, 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says that coming straight off of, uh, of Jesus' words in, in Matthew 15, 11. Jesus himself taught, he said, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them. It's what comes out of their mouth that defiles them. It's not the food that you eat. It's out of the abundance of the heart that your mouth speaks. Are you speaking life? Or are you speaking death? Are you showing love or are you not? Paul's saying all things now are lawful. Yesterday in the old covenant, you, you used to have to go through a priest to access the presence of God. Only the high priest was allowed to go past the veil into the holy of holies where the presence of God resided. And Paul says now you live in a place where there is access directly to God. When Jesus died on the cross, it says there was a great earthquake and the veil was torn in two. That veil that separated God from you and I is now available to everybody. You don't live in that anymore. Paul is saying you used to live under the burden of legalism, rituals, feasts, and Sabbaths. But today under the new covenant, you live in a relationship with God. And he uses this term Sabbath on purpose. 
Because Jesus addresses that same exact thing in his lifetime. He heals an individual in the temple on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders basically chastise him and, 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 and come after him. And he says, you've missed the point as you always do. He said, the Sabbath was created for the man. The man wasn't created for the Sabbath. You've got the importance. You've got uh, uh, what matters most mixed up. The Sabbath was created for the man to make sure that we have rest and margin in our lives. You don't have to adhere to these things religiously anymore. And in the end, Paul says you don't live under the old law of the old covenant because of the work of Christ on the cross. Everything is filtered through that one event and now you live in a new time, in a new day. The playing field is different and now you live in grace and in freedom. In essence, Paul is saying, quit living under the burden of the legalism of the past and start living in the freedom that's available to you today. But the thing, the thing with this freedom is that there's a tension that we must wrestle with when it comes to freedom. Because if we take this out of context, this idea that we're free, the idea that we're not bound to all of these things anymore, if we take it out of context, we can get messed up. Anybody ever had somebody take something that you said out of context and use it against you? Anybody? Nobody was in their hands, but there's a lot of mm-hmms going on, right? We see it happen all the time in media, don't we? One person, one political party, whatever it is, they find one quote of an interview of somebody that's their, uh, their opponent, and they'll take it, use it out of context, and say, this is what this person says. But if you actually go back and look at the interview, the person was just like quoting like, hey, this is what people say I say, or I believe, da-da-da-da-da, but I don't believe that. That's not what I said. But they'll use that one quote and try to twist it because that's the headline. Most of us don't click on the article to read it. We just read the headline as we scroll through. Out of context, it doesn't make sense. And this happened in the first century church with the idea of freedom. There were individuals who heard Paul teach, hey, I am weak. God, I need you you to come in and remove this thing from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. So Paul begins to boast in his weakness because in his weakness, God's strength is made that much more apparent and his grace abounds. People hear that ideal, they take it out of context and all of a sudden it becomes a free ticket to sin. Well, shoot, if the more we sin, the more God's grace abounds and the more glory he gets, then I'll just go out and sin like crazy. And Paul says, no, 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 you're missing it. See, the tension that you and I have to wrestle with is that we don't abuse that freedom that we've been given. Going back to something that I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul says all things are lawful, but he directly follows that up with a few more words. He says, but not all things are profitable. No, eating certain things won't defile you anymore. That's been uh, uh, defeated and conquered by Jesus on the cross. It won't separate you from God. But that doesn't mean that your freedom might not become a stumbling block for someone else. There's a lot of individuals that I see, especially on social media, man, they just boast about their freedoms in Christ, and yet some of the things, it's like, listen, you have freedom in that. But man, boasting about it, it's, it's like you're throwing that in somebody else's face because they struggle with that thing. And Paul's very clear not to cause individuals to stumble. There's a tension that we don't abuse that freedom. So what does this mean for us? You might be saying, Ryan, this is great, but isn't this just a letter written by Paul to a first century church in Colossae? How does this apply to you and I today? And the truth is this, the exact same issues that Paul addresses are alive and well in 2018. And church, I love you enough to point this out. 
It's funny because I was telling somebody in the lobby, I feel like every time I get, uh, it's my turn up here to come up here, I get the passage of scripture that's not super exciting at the end of it. It's a little bit challenging. But I love you enough to tell you this. There are different Jesuses being preached all over the place. There are competing doctrines that don't line up with Jesus' teaching all over in America and all over our world. Let me give you a few examples. The prosperity gospel. The idea that Jesus wants every single person to be rich beyond measure. It's taking the idea, it's taking true principles, and it's starting to go on an offshoot in a different direction for different reasons. Right? How about this one? There's ideals out there about a different Jesus, that you can love Jesus, and as long as you pray the, the prayer, as long as you say you believe in God, as long as, you, as long as you pray that thing and ask for forgiveness, you can go live any lifestyle you want, do anything you want, nothing needs to change, because you can always just come back, and he's going to accept you and forgive you. And while there is truth in that, that there's always grace available, it's about the heart issue, isn't it? It's no different than the people that said, let me go sin freely then. It's a free ticket to sin. This happens still today for us. We see it all the time. There's another movement that says, man, you know, Jesus was just a man, good prophet, good guy, but I don't believe that he was fully God. This one's super popular. Well, I just believe in a higher power. Well, I believe in God, so I'm a Christian. No, no, you can believe in God. There are a lot of athletes. There are a lot of uh, uh, actors and actresses. There are a lot of musicians of our favorite bands that will stand up and give God all the glory, and their lives are putrescent. They don't live, they don't change, they don't do anything. Believing in God does not make you a Christian. Believing in a higher power does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian, the Bible says, is that everything comes through Jesus. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. The verse and the chorus that we sang, Christ alone is our cornerstone. It's believing in him, his death, his payments. That is following Jesus. And what I'm not saying by this is that all of these things in the past were all bad. The sacrifices, the commitment to Jesus. We don't, aren't chained to those things, but Jesus gave us plenty of things that we need to sacrifice, right? He pointed toward a road that we need to follow that is not easy. There's enough in what Jesus challenged us we need to do that we don't need to add all of these other things onto it. Here's just a couple of things if we go back to truth that Jesus prescribed for his followers. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. How are we doing on that one? Jesus uh, taught turn the other cheek when you've been wronged. How many of us actually do that? Or we try to go for instant justice because of what somebody has done to us. Jesus taught that you should be known by love. How many would say the first thing people would say about you from coworkers to neighbors would say that you're a person known by love? Jesus taught us to pick up our cross and follow him, which is not easy, it's painful, it's the baggage, it's the burden that we carry. It's not easy. Jesus taught that we shouldn't be consumed by greed, but that we should live generously. How are we doing with that one? Jesus taught us not to be selfish, but, or self, selfish, but to be selfless, to look at how we can help others achieve and move forward, not be selfish and only what helps us. He taught us to become servants, not consumers. He said that we would suffer for his namesake. Following Jesus isn't easy. Many people claim that following Jesus is. Hey, just pray a prayer and go back to living however you'd like. I want to close with this. And I say this and I remind you, I say this because I love you. And I'm including myself, every pastor, every staff member in the same thing. It's a challenge for us. We all need to check ourselves 
We need to check what we believe. We need to check what we promote, the ideals that we hold value to, what we speak out so passionately about on our soapbox on Facebook and social media. Do these ideals line up with the words and the direction of Jesus? Are they founded in truth? And the only way to know that is to pick this up and read it. And if I'm honest with you, if statistics are true, the majority of us, even in this room, don't or not enough. There's a lot of competing ideals and things that are out there. Are, you, are we following it because it sounds good? Right, that whole idea, man, all of that stuff looks good on paper, right? Sacrifice, pious self-denial, bodily discipline. Man, it looks good on paper, looks super spiritual. But Paul says it produces nothing. Are we following the truth or are we following something far different than when Jesus actually commanded? Yes, we should rejoice in the freedom that we have because of the work of the cross. If we truly fathomed it, to be honest, it should bring us to our knees and produce great humility in us. But I have two questions for every single person here, including myself. What Jesus are you following? Do you love Jesus? Or do you love the idea of Jesus? You know, there's a lot of people that love the idea of Jesus, the idea of a Savior, the idea of free grace. But the question is, do you actually love him? Do you know him? Does his truth shape your ideals? Or do you somehow find a way to justify those ideals or maybe even just avoid matching them up to the truth because it's simpler that way? Jesus said, many at the end will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, as if they know me. But I will say, depart from me because I never knew you. The Jesus you were following was not me. He reiterates that the path that leads to destruction is wide. A lot of people will take it because it will look good. Political correctness and all of these things and these types of Jesuses. But the road that leads to life and the gate is narrow and few will find it. What Jesus are you following today? One more question for you. If you happen to be following a different version of Jesus, a doctrine that was an offshoot of the truth, would you want to know it before it was too late? I want to challenge all of us to truly engage Jesus and wrestle through our ideals, our values, what we hold most dear in our lives to see if they match up with what Jesus taught with the truth. And that's the exact same thing Paul was doing to the Colossians because he loved them. Be careful not to be deceived. There's a lot of people speaking about a Jesus or a thing, but you're missing it. You're going off on a tangent. It's going to lead you in a place that you don't want to end up. Next week, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to take these three ideals and principles and move towards discovering how to put these truths into action to build a Christ-centered life. But for each one of us, ask the question, go to scripture, what things do we believe and do they match up with the truth of what Jesus said? Are we somehow following something else? Maybe even with good intentions, but are, are we missing it? Are we going in a direction that we don't want to end? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you, first off, for the price you paid on the cross. We don't want to skip over it. We want to, don't want to devalue it. God, you were incredible. Jesus, what you did on the cross set us free. It broke the spiritual powers, God, present 
on the earth and in heaven. It overcame everything against us. It wiped our slates clean and canceled the charges against us that we are guilty of and that we deserve death because of. But God, we want to know, Jesus, we want to know if we're following you or if somehow by our culture, by our friends, by what's politically correct, we want to make sure our ideals match up with what you taught because we don't want to end up down the road in a place that we didn't intend to be because we were deceived. God, we say that we love you. Do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.